So Genesis 3, I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'll probably talk a lot. <laughs> Verse 1, I was sick on Wednesday, so I didn't do chapter 3. This Wednesday, we will do chapter 3, which is a brilliant chapter. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, I always joke, how are you talking right now? We may eat of the tree of the may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Did she have bad motives when she did this? Mm -mm. Not at all. Some of the worst sins are motivated by good things. Then the eyes of both were opened and they saw that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So last week, here's what we did if you were here. We laid out chapters one and two. If you're just reading Genesis for the first time, whether it's 21st century or as a freed slave from Egypt who was the original audience, you're reading it for the first time. You read through Genesis one, and God is saying over and over, good. Genesis 2, God sees something that's not good. Adam's alone. And so he immediately provides the answer to make things good. So if you just had Genesis 1 and 2, you would have a picture that God wants to make a really good space for you. And even in your really good space, if God sees a need, he's going to supply that for you that it's paradise, that it's brilliant, that it's beautiful, that it's delight. Eden just means delight. It's the garden of delight. And I think every man since Adam has been trying to get back to the garden with his wife, a home that's a delight, a place that's good, like that, that's in us. It's a drive to get back to Eden. So you read Genesis 1 and 2, and then you sit back, you don't read Genesis 3, you're going to say, well, what in the world went wrong? So last week we looked at sin, how it fractured this thing, and there's problems. And the main fracture came from one thing. You have Genesis 1 and 2. God is good. God is good. He's pr providing good things. Even if he sees the needs, he's, he's going to take care of that. Like God is this good, generous God. And the attack of the enemy is always this. God is not good. God's holding out on you. That's how the enemy digs into the heart of Eve. And she has good desires. It's not a bad desire to be wise. She has really good desires, but he digs into her heart through, God's holding out on you. He's not that good. That's the root of sin. And when that wedge gets into a human heart, 
it is used by the enemy to leverage us into all kinds of activity. All right, so that was last week. Obviously, the solution is the cross where you see God being both good and generous. He gives of himself in a good way to restore to us Eden, which is the end of the book, all right? But that was last week. So what I didn't talk about is the fallout, okay? So now you have sin, you've got this fracture, treason really against the high king. You've got treason here in the garden. What's the fallout of it? And it's massive. So Wednesday, we'll look at a lot of it, the fear, the shame, the blame, the relational issues that are not gonna happen in marriage. Instead of it being this bliss, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the two were naked and unashamed. Instead of it being that way, most marriages are not that way. Most marriages have some strife and some contention in them, right? So that comes in chapter three. We'll be able to explore that on Wednesday night. It's brilliant. But I just wanna look at two things. The two first things that happen with a fallout of sin because I think they are massive and they still affect most people, even believers to this day. And they're both found in verse seven. Number one, it says this, right after, their, right after they eat, disobey God, rebel, believing God is not good, that age old lie, obedience is boring, rebellion is exciting. All right, in some of the services I Mentioned the bumper sticker, good girls go to heaven, bad girls go everywhere else, right? That's the idea. It's in this. So um, immediately they, they rebel and it says that they knew, number one, that they were naked. They knew they were naked. Now, there's only one class of humans now that don't feel the shame of nakedness. Who are they? Babies, someone said it. Little babies have no shame about being naked, right? We all have pictures of our kids in just their diapers. And we all have that one period of time where there's still the lack of shame and they've also figured out how to take off their diaper, right? That's a dangerous time. We're just like, oh my goodness, he's naked again, right? My girls were kind of bad. Boys, it's just like crazy to keep clothes on them. It's like trying to baptize a cat. You're just like, oh no, where's he at? Oh, he's naked, out in the road. Okay, good, get him back in here. So they're the only one. But then there comes a point where they're like, oh, this, this really isn't good. I should clothe myself. So what does this mean that they knew that they were naked? Is it like all of a sudden they're like, oh my goodness, I don't have clothes on. Who would have thought that? It's much more deep than that. Genesis, if you know, the account is extremely compact. But its compactness sometimes can deceive you about its depth. So nakedness, yes, it's physical, but it's more than that. It's mental and it's spiritual. Because in chapter two, when we're introduced to this idea of nakedness, it is in a relationship that Adam and Eve have with each other. It's the end of chapter two, that they were with each other and they were naked and unashamed. So there's a physical aspect to it, but there's also a mental and a spiritual knowledge of it. It was this idea. The idea is this, that Adam and Eve, in their marriage, they could relate to each other in a way that was 100% open and authentic. No games. It's they knew this. We can both be known and loved. 
We can both be known 100%, know each other 100%, and we can still love each other without any games. I call it vulnerability without any liability. Do we actually have that today? Nope. Every husband has things that he has not told his wife because he thinks she can't handle that. Every wife has things that she has never told her husband because she realizes he can't handle that. It's too much of a liability. If I am that vulnerable with him, if I'm that vulnerable with her, look out. We all know this today. You can't both be loved and known completely. That if we really were honest and really told what we thought or what we felt or a dream we had or those things, if we were really that way, then look out. It would actually damage our relationship. I think it's why every single person has had the nightmare that they go to school and they're only wearing their underwear, right? Who hasn't had that nightmare, right? What, what is it? It's actually us saying, you really can't be vulnerable. You really can't show who you are to other people. Or if you did, they're gonna laugh at you. We all know that. That's what's coming back with this word, right? And so now built into everything, every relationship is we have this little PR guy, little PR gal that goes in our brain and tells us what we can and cannot share. Well, I can't share that. Oh, well, better not look out. That's why dating is so weird now, isn't it? Because when you're dating, you're, that PR guy is choreographing what you should and should not say. Because no one wants to be too vulnerable. No one wants to be too known too quick. Look out. Right? I've joked about this before. It happened to me. I've shared this before. I'll share it again because it works perfect. So Charity and I were dating for about four months. Um, I knew that I was in way over my head, that she was out of my league, but I still had to play the game that I was at a catch. You know, I had to get the PR, choreograph things, make things look good. So her 21st birthday comes up and I decided I've got to make this good. So I got a reservation over at the Firefly over in, Med or in Ashland, excuse me. Um, we head over to Ashland where we order some food, very expensive, very tiny portions, like a piece of parsley and an organic cut fava bean. That was like it. I'm like, we should have gone to the Black Bear Diner because it's like massive there. So I'm like, oh. So it didn't take a lot to eat the food. So we ate everything and then it was like, okay, what do we do now? And she asked this question. She's, she, we'd been going out for four months, 21st birthday. She goes, well, where do you see this relationship going? Which is a setup. If you're dating, that is a setup, classic setup. I don't think she was trying to set me up, but I was set up. And I just went for it. I said, okay, I'm gonna be vulnerable here. And I said, I see us getting married. And she is mid-bite and a piece of parsley. She goes, oh, I don't know about that. I just went, ah, oh, all right. I made her pay for her meal that night. You're paying, woman. I'm not paying for that beat down. I'm sorry. What happened in that moment? I was more vulnerable, right? And what happened to me? I got shut down. Now, I was right in the end. 
But there's that tension in, in dating and, and the choreograph of it and how, what do I let her know and what don't I let him know and all this kind of stuff that, hey, I can't have you pick me up my, my house. Why? Because the yard's a mess. Because I didn't fin finish that painting project and I don't want you to see me as undisciplined so I will meet you somewhere instead. That's this whole thing. No more vulnerability because it's now a liability. Look out, you can't do that anymore. It's why we wear certain kinds of clothes, right? Like clothes that hide what we don't like and amplify what we do like. That's why I wear tight shirts to make my guns look big. <laughs> People say, have you been working out? I'm like, no, I'm wearing Elijah's shirt now. It just makes me look bigger. <laughs> all right, it's just that simple. Like we all have games we play because we know deep down the root of it is, look out, you can't both be known and loved. You got to play the game now. Something fractured. They knew that they were naked. And when they knew that they were naked, they realized we got to take a choice now. Either I'm going to be known and people will be like, oh man, he's a mess. Or I'm going to script my life so that people love me. That's this. That's his nakedness. All right. So that's the first problem. Now, what do they do about that problem? They know they have this problem. They know that they're naked. So what did they immediately do? It's verse seven. It says they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Right, we know we're naked. We know that we can't be open and vulnerable like that. So we're gonna get these fig leaves together and we're gonna make ourselves presentable. We're gonna fix what we've broken. We're gonna cover up our shame. We're gonna improve on ourselves, right? You know what this is? You know what these fig leaves are? It's religion. That's all religion is. Religion is I'm gonna fix what's broken. I'm gonna improve myself. I'm gonna make something of myself. Yes, I made mistakes. Yes, I blew it. Yes, I didn't do those things right, but it's okay because now I'm sewing together some fig leaves and I'm moving forward and I'm going to make something out of this. That's every single religion. Every religion is ultimately wearing some leaves. In fact, the leaf wearing religion still exists. It's out in Tequilma, you should go there. <laughs> That's what religion is. Religion is always, I'm gonna prove it to you. Whether by pain, like I'm gonna beat myself, faithfulness with rituals, I'm gonna be really faithful, I'm gonna stick to this thing, I'm gonna show everybody that I'm not that broken, that I'm a pretty good guy. Sometimes religion comes in blame. Like it is a way to use somebody to shield you. So instead of you admitting that you're broken, it's, well, it's my mom's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's a pastor's fault. It's a teacher's fault. It's somebody, they're your fig leaf. They protect you. They shield you from your own nakedness. Not, not really me. I, I'm like, I, I'd be fine if it wasn't for this person. I would even say this, irreligion today is a religion. It's the new fig leaf that I'm not religious, whatever. So Charity and I were just talking about this on Thursday night, how kids that were in church or we knew growing up or uh, seemed to have a faith in Jesus or seemed to show fruit, all of a sudden they go to college and then they'll come back and they'll tell their parents, I don't believe in God anymore, irreligion. And, and their parents will ask them, well, why? And usually you get these answers like, well, it's the intolerance of Christianity. 
that how can Jesus be the only way? Or what about the Aborigines in Australia? What about them? How can God just send them to hell? Or just the inconsistencies in the Bible, which I always say, could you show me some of those? Because you said plural, show me some. They should be really easy to find. Or a professor told me this and that, and I believe the professor now, right? There's all these kind of, I just call those fig leaves. But usually, usually if you poke, usually if you'll prod, you'll find out there's something else in there actually. And it's nakedness. If you poke in your prod, what you'll find is this. When did this start? People that deal with this will find this. When did you start not believing anymore? And very often this is what it is. Well, four months ago, when I moved in with my boyfriend, I stopped believing. Guess what that tells me? That person can't stand the gaze of God anymore. Don't look at me. I want to do anything. I don't want God's gaze to see me anymore, to see my nakedness, to see my failure, my inadequacy. I don't want to see that anymore. So I'm just going to close my eyes and act like it does not exist. Very often, at the root of irreligion, it's a new fig leaf. I don't want God to see me this way. That's what it is. It's interesting to me. They cover themselves with fig, fig leaves. We don't have a lot of figs around here, but if you read about figs, they actually can cause an, al- an allergic reaction. And fig leaves have these tiny little spines on the back of the leaf. Did you know that? They like to embed themselves in you. These are loincloths, right? Southern Oregon would be making underwear out of poison oak and blackberries. You wonder why they're a little kind of ticked off in the rest of this text, (laughs) why they're like blaming each other. I think it's because they're like hyper irritated right here. (laughs) To me, that's religion. You want to get irritated, kind of smug, angry people? Talk to religious people. People that are hiding behind some kind of a fig tree. Man, they are very, very much irritated, smug, condescending, us versus them. Yeah, try to have a conversation with them. Try to look at a different viewpoint. Are they like, oh yeah, that is interesting. Do they do that? No, religious people attack you. Who killed Jesus? Religious people. Why? Because Jesus was exposing their fig leaves, saying this ain't gonna work. And so what'd they do? Did they listen to Jesus? You know, that is fascinating. I never saw God like that. No, they said, we have to kill him. We must kill him. That's religion. I think it's right that there's this saying, um, the only difference between a religious person and a terrorist is you can negotiate with the terrorist. That's true. Like religious people are right here. They cover themselves in fig leaves. They're irritable. They're angry. They're this right here. This has been the situation, verse seven, for every person since Adam. Naked and trying to cover it with some kind of fig leaf, but the fig leaf never does it. It never covers your inadequacy, never covers your nakedness, never does that. It's your own effort. And what we really need is we need someone else to cover us. What we really need is God's face to shine on us. What we really need is to go back to Genesis 1:28, where we get the blessing of the heavenly father. That's what we really need. You know, fig leaves are like this. It's like uh, in school, did you ever grade your own paper? right? A plus. Brilliant work. Submit that thing for a Nobel Prize in literature. That is amazing, right? Maybe some of you hate yourself. F, you're horrible. I hate you. I don't know. Does does any of that matter though? 
No. You need someone else, someone greater than you, to say A plus, great work. That's when it actually matters. Fig leaves are you grading yourself, saying, I'm good, look at how good I am, all this kind of stuff. What we really need is God to tell us that. And when we don't, what happens is, when we're, when we're covering ourselves with fig leaves, we're irritable and we're allergic. And we become intolerable. And what I found is this, this is what's fascinating to me. Sometimes we'll even hide behind Bible verses about our anger and intolerance. We'll hide behind Luke chapter six. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you for my name's sake. So then we start holding that up like, well, people just hate me because I love Jesus. I'm like, no, people hate you because you're a pompous, arrogant jerk. That's why they hate you. And I say that because this was me. If I could rewind the clock somehow for you to back to 1995, I was exactly in this verse. You can talk to my college roommates. I was religion to a T. And I would have these arguments, throw down arguments with my, with my Christian believing roommates. And I believed in Jesus and all that kind of stuff, but I was in a, in a very mixed up theology. So number one, I didn't have a dad, a dad who was telling me, hey man, A plus Matt, good job. So I didn't have that, I had that need in me. On top of that, I had this crazy theology about God. And my crazy theology about God was this, God hates sinners. And God is waiting to curse and crush sinners. So if you sin, guess what God's gonna do to you? He is gonna crush you. Well, I was sinning all the time. So then I'm just waiting, waiting for God to crush me. What's gonna happen next? Is my tranny in my Toyota truck gonna break down? Is the math professor that I'm really kind of struggling with, is he gonna flunk me? Am I gonna get cancer? Am I gonna get hit by a bus? I mean, what is it? Like God up there has this Rolodex of illnesses and curses that he just like, whack. Hmm. Blow up his Volkswagen bus. No, those are pretty cool. Right? Like what? I'm gonna get mad. I'm going to crush him. That God was angry and he's just waiting for an opportunity to curse me and crush me. So I had this, this tension. Like I, I need someone's face to shine on me. And the one face that I need to shine on me, I realize he's angry at me and he's gonna curse me. That was a lot, a lot of my life. In fact, the majority of my early life was simply this way. You know what changed me? When I read the Bible for myself. When I started actually, instead of taking like these ideas that, that they're kind of like this collective information about God and just accepting the collective information about God, it's when I started saying, what does the Bible actually say that God is? Is he angry? Is God waiting to curse humans? Does God curse the humans in chapter three? We'll find out on Wednesday night. But what, what is God like? When I really started to say, what is God like? It's called theology, the study of God. That's what changed me. I wanna show you one way, and it's right here in this chapter that changed how I began to see God. Okay, notice what God does with the very first sinners. There's a principle in the Bible that how God deals with things in the first time is really important. So now you've got two sinners who essentially say to God, forget you, we're committing treason against you, we're obeying this other thing. We're doing our own thing. We're going to decide what is good and what is bad. Two treasonous sinners. How does God deal with them? All right, notice what he does. Look at verse eight. 
And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Number one, God comes to sinners. He comes to them. Number two, verse nine. But Yahweh God called, <coughs> excuse me, to the man and said to him, where are you? God comes to these sinners. And number two, God calls out to these sinners. Can the thrice holy God have sinners in his presence? I grew up with a theology that God could not have sinners in his presence. That his holiness would not allow there to be any sin in his presence. That in fact, when God turns his back, if you, the idea was uh, on the cross, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was God having to turn his back on the son because of the sins of the world being poured out on the son. Like that's where that theology drives to. Can the thrice holy God, the holy, holy, holy God have sinners in his presence? Genesis chapter three, who's in his presence? Adam and Eve, what have they just done? Sinned. Like it's crazy. There's this idea in us that uh, if you sin, you're a leper and you need to cry unclean and God flees from you. I say it's the exact opposite, that it's actually God's holiness that causes him to call and to come to sinners to do his greatest work, which is, which is redemption, which is what Jesus says, right? In the New Testament, if a man has 99 sheep that are doing really well, but he's got one sheep that's just a moron and keeps rebelling and taking off, what does that shepherd do? Leaves the 99, chases after that one until he finds that one and brings that one back to the fold. That is actually God's holiness that causes him to both call and to come to sinners. That his holiness motivates that right there. Man, I had the opposite. So for the first 25 years of my life, I just imagined God angry at me, waiting to curse me, waiting to pull out some kind of punishment on me. But then I started reading the Bible. The very first sinners, God actually comes and calls to them. Then, then notice what he says here. Where are you? Did the creator of the universe not know where Adam and Eve were at? Was this the first game of hide and go seek? Where are you? Right? If it was, it'd be like me playing hide and go seek with my three-year-old Myron, who thinks he is brilliant by going to the middle of the living room floor, throwing a blanket over himself and giggling and saying, dad, will never find me here. And then saying, mom, don't tell dad where I'm at. That's what it'd be like. No, that's not, the, that's not at all what's happening here. God's not like, I wonder where they're at. No, this is a much, much deeper question. It'd be like the question, man, what's going on with you? Where are you at, bro? Where are you at in life? That's, that's the question. Where are you at? It's God being this incredible counselor. Doesn't make a statement. Doesn't say you sinful, horrible humans. He comes and invites a conversation, right? Statements end conversation. Questions invite conversation. It's God the Father saying, hey, sinners, let's talk. Where are you? 
hey, sinners, let's talk. You want to be a good counselor? I think you can learn a ton right here from God. God invites a conversation with sinners. Hey, where are you? What's happening with you? What are you doing right now? And I think Adam, look at verse 10, is super honest. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Like I love Adam. He's just 100% honest with God. Oh God, this is the deal, man. I heard you and I was totally afraid. So I ran away and I'm naked. Notice what God picks up on. What statement in there God picks up on? Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Out of all that Adam says, you know, I heard you, I ran from you, I hid from you, I'm naked. The one statement that God actually picks up on is this, who told you you were naked? Because that's the identity statement. Adam now identifies as a naked human. I'm a naked human. God grabs that identity statement and says, who told you you're a naked human? When I do counseling, I do it just like this right here. I ask questions. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. One of the things I always look for, identity statements. What's your identity? Who do you think you are? Right? And then very often I have to say, well, who told you that? Who told you you were this way? Because life does something to us. Life curses us. Sometimes it's through a parent. Sometimes it's through a teacher. Sometimes it's through an ex. And we get this identity statement that is, I'm this. And I'll ask, who told you that? Because sometimes, and I agree with John Eldridge here, sometimes I think the enemy looks at a human as they grow up and looks for this one opportunity where they can can be cursed in such a way that their heart is hurt and they take on an identity statement that's incorrect. And very often with men, it's this. Men wanna be respected. We wanna be significant. We wanna matter. And so very often the hurt to a man that the enemy does to us, the serpent does to men is this. You're an incompetent fool. When the job, when the owner, when the boss finally figures it out, you're fired. You're an incompetent fool. Because our whole desire is, I want to be competent. I want people to think I'm valuable. I want people to think I'm worth something. I want to be respected. And so a lot of times in a man's life, the curse is you're incompetent. And then we wear this weight around us. And so when I hear these identity statements, I'm always, who told you that? Well, my dad did. My mom did. My brother did. My teacher did. And there I always go to the gospel and how it identifies us. Women, it's different. Women, it's relationships. It's almost always a relational kind of curse. When the curse is this, you'll never be loved. You made mistakes growing up. You're not pure anymore. Even if you get married, you'll still be alone in that marriage. You're never gonna be known because women desire to be known. And so Satan will attack with this. And I always say, who told you that? Who told you that? Because that's a lie. So God the Father, what does he do with sinners? Did he shun them? Does he make them shout leper, unclean, stay away? No, he comes, he calls, and he counsels them. 
And then even more than that, even more than that, look at verse 21. And there's a whole bunch in here I'm skipping. <coughs> and Yahweh God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They made irritating, poisonous loincloths. It never says they were clothed or covered. God comes, takes animal skins or garments of skins, and it says he clothes them. This is a biblical theology of God here, that God comes and he's the one that clothes his people. And you can see it from here all the way through the Bible, that he's the one that gives us the right identity. So read, we did Ezekiel chapter 16, two months ago, very hard chapter, but it begins with these two babies that are naked and left out to die. And it says that God came by, he saw them, he cleansed them and he clothed them, covered their nakedness. That's God's prerogative to clothe us, to cover us. We, we've talked about Hosea. Hosea is the prophet who is told by God to marry a prostitute. The prophet and the prostitute. I've always thought that could be a reality TV show, couldn't it? <laughs> and Gomer, the prostitute, does what prostitutes do to Hosea. She leaves and starts back into that business. And in chapter three, Hosea gets this message. Hey, Gomer, your wife is in trouble. She got in with the wrong people. She started doing drugs. She's now owing really bad people a lot of money. Now they're gonna sell her. And so God says to Hosea, you go, you buy her back. And so Hosea rushes down there and she's on a block, stripped naked, because that's the way they would sell them. And people are bidding on her and she is humiliated. And then all of a sudden she hears the voice of her husband, 14 shekels and someone else, 15 shekels. And the owner says, hey, I've been feeding her for months. And so Hosea says, okay, 15 shekels and nine bushels of barley. Apparently she ate like a horse or something. <laughs> Sold. And then she goes down to Hosea and Hosea begins to speak to her and Gomer's worried. Did he buy me back as a slave? What did he buy me back as? Am I a second class citizen now? And in Hosea 3.3, it's one of the most beautiful covenant languages Covenant language, <coughs> I'm gonna cough here again. Uh, covenant language verses in the Bible. And it says, Hosea looked at Gomer, just buying her out of prostitution and says, from now on, it's just you and me, no one else. You're to be my wife and I'm gonna be your husband. I love that verse. No, and he veils her and he covers her. And this is what God says, this is what I do for my people. Even though they rebel, even though they run off, even though they sin, I buy them back at my own expense and I cover them. And I say, it's just you and me now, nothing else. All right, then you just go to the New Testament. Jesus on the cross, is he clothed or naked? He's naked, why? All the way back to Genesis. He is stripped of his clothes. In fact, soldiers gamble for his clothes down below. He's stripped naked on the cross so that you and I would never have to be stripped naked again that now we are clothed. Like one of the most important texts 
for me is when it comes to identity, the, the, where I always go with people, when I say, who told you this? Is the book of Colossians. Because Colossians just hammers home. This is your identity in Jesus Christ. You were this, but you are this now. You are no longer vulnerable anymore. It's not a liability for you. But in chapter three, it says this. It says, your life is hid <coughs> in Christ. And Christ, who is your life, those two terms right there are revolutionary to me. Christ, who is your life, and your life now is hid with Christ. That book transforms my life. Because I realize my life is not getting people's opinion to like me or to think I'm cool. That's not my life. My life is not to be, have the iPhone 7 or to be sexually irresistible or to have a thousand followers or a million followers. That's not my life. My life is Christ. That is my life. That's life. So whether you like this sermon or not is not my life. Whether you come back next week or not, it's not my life. Now for me, that was revolutionary because I've told people this for the first five years of Edgewater, my preaching was this. I'm good, please like me. Look how smart I am, please like me. Now, not that I don't face those same things, but much less now. Now it's, man, this is really good, I hope you like this. That was transformational for me. Whether you like it or not doesn't matter because I just know this is God's truth and this is what you need to know. I'm gonna preach it. And whether you like me or not, guess what? My life is already hid with Christ. I'm clothed by him, I'm protected by him. And yes, I would like you to like me, but if you don't like me, it's still okay because my life is Christ. I've already got it. I call it the breastplate of righteousness. See, it's God's prerogative to clothe his people. And when you're clothed by God, something transforms inside of you. Now you realize, you know what? I can be vulnerable without it being a liability. I can be because this person, their opinion of me is not gonna kill me. Whether they think I'm the best or not is not gonna kill me. Whether we go on a second date or not is not gonna kill me because I already have my life hidden in Christ. He is my life. It is revolutionary and life transforming. Edgewater, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he is your life. You've already got it. It's hid in him, period. And whether people like you or not is always second to that. Man, it's unbelievable. And we take communion, and communion, just about better than anything else, continually reminds us of this. Hey, my life is hid in Christ. He's what matters. Did you know if you took a lamb to the temple 2,000 years ago because you were a sinner, guess what would happen? The high priest or the priest would come out. Would they inspect you? Would they ask you questions? Hey, how you been doing last week? Did you read the Bible enough? Did you pray enough? Were you nice to your neighbor? Did you give... No, guess what the priest would do? Inspect the lamb. If the lamb was spotless, they'd say, okay, you're good. Jesus, who was our life, is our Passover lamb. You and I now are accepted to the Father, not based on what we did last week or how good we were or how good we weren't. That, 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 none of that matters. Jesus, Jesus is inspected and every time he's perfect. In fact, the Old Testament uses this Hebrew word, it's, it's kapar. It's often translated atonement. The word kapar literally means to cover or to wipe the face clean. 
Jesus covers us and wipes us clean. And because of that, we come boldly before God's throne of grace and obtain help in our time of need. Revolutionary. Everything else is fig leaves. This is the gospel. So Jesus, I pray for any in here who maybe were like me for years. believing you hated and cursed sinners. I pray that the message of Adam and Eve, the very first sinners, and how you respond to them would transform us. That we would see you come and you call and you counsel and you cover. That you truly are a good and generous God who works your greatest work in redemption. May we come and may we dine this morning and may you cover our inadequacies and our anxieties and our depression and our worry and our opinion-driven lives. Lord, may you cover those and may we be set free. May the truth that you cover us. May the truth that our lives are hid with you. May the truth that you are our life, may that set us free today from all the games and all the relationship garbage that we face all the time. And may we be bulletproof, Lord, wearing the breastplate of righteousness. Thank you. Cover us. Cleanse us, call us, counsel us, I pray. And I ask this in your name, amen.